travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the shenanigans. It was the early 80s, and sex was still a good way to meet new people. The disappointment. Now that's a real shame when folks be throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that. And the self-confidence. I'm six foot, three inches tall, and maintain a very consistent panda bear shape. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Sure, it's not 1985 right now, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your old pal, Spearsy. And Gail in D.C. And today we talked to former Hollywood TV writer and author of a new book called End Credits, How I Broke Up with Hollywood. She was a writer for Freaks and Geeks, Friends, Desperate Housewives, and Breaking Bad. It's our interview with Patty Lynn. You think she's going to hang out with us after hanging out with all those jocks and cheerleaders? Why wouldn't she? Because they're pod people. This episode of Stuck in the 80s is sponsored by... The 80s Cruise. Join your Stuck in the 80s hosts along with MTV VJs Mark Goodman, Alan Hunter, and downtown Julie Brown in spring 2024 for a week-long trip aboard the Royal Caribbean Mariner of the Seas. Performance will include 38 Special, Air Supply, The English Beat, Soft Cell, Debbie Gibson, Sebastian Bach, Stephen Piercy of Rat, Ray Parker Jr., Sheena Easton, Wang Chung, Midnight Star, and Emotion Real Life Escape Club, When in Rome, Tommy Two-Tone, and more. yes. As you probably know, the cruise is officially sold out, but you can still join the wait list. Go to www.the80scruise.com for more information. And don't forget to use the promo code STUCK when booking to get $200 of cabin credit. I am the monarch of the sea. Hey, gang. Today we have a really interesting chat with author Patty Lynn. Uh, but first, I want to tell you how it all came about. Back in the summer, I got an email from Patty's publicist telling me about her upcoming book about her amazing Hollywood uh, TV writing career. And also at the same time telling us that, hey, Patty was a huge fan of the 80s. Uh, But as you know, it's been a crazy summer for me, both personally and podcast wise. So I hadn't gotten a chance to read it yet. Then I see a post online from Gail, who has the amazing book blog, EverydayIWriteTheBookBlog.com. She had finished the book and was writing a review of it. And I was like, two plus two equals four. Sounds like a great idea. So we teamed up. Yes, we did. So Steve said yes to the uh, interview offer, and we had a fantastic conversation with her about her experience. It's it's really interesting. She really she starts back as a kid. She's the daughter of Taiwanese immigrants, and it talks about her her beginning to get that love for creative writing. She'll talk uh, in the interview about what TV shows kind of inspired her to become a TV writer. And um, and then she tells the story of how her career came to an end. And so it's one of those really interesting books where you, every chapter kind of takes you in a, in a new direction. And I, I found when I was reading it that I'd have to put the book down between chapters and, and, and tell my wife, like, you won't believe what just happened to her on the set of Friends, or you won't believe she was almost dating Jason Seagal from uh, Freaks and Geeks or something like that. So it's just, it's a, it's a great page turner. Yeah, it's also really personal. I mean, she talks a lot about her romantic relationship, um, you know, a lot of the kind of imposter syndrome that she experienced, uh, what it was like being often the only woman in the room, almost always the only Asian person in the room. It's just a really deeply personal memoir that, while very interesting about the, you know, television writing business in Hollywood and the famous people she was around is also just really compelling. as just a personal narrative. 
So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Patty Lynn, author of End Credits, How I Broke Up with Hollywood. Patty Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. Patty, it's so great to talk to you and thank you for coming on the show. As Steve mentioned, I am a book blogger and a book reviewer. I spend a lot of my time reading and one of my favorite kind of micro genres is workplace memoirs. I think it's so fascinating to get into somebody else's life, see what their job is like. I just want to say how much I enjoyed your memoir for that reason and many others. And I wanted to ask you just off the bat, when you're sort of flirting with the idea of writing a memoir like this, like how much do you worry about kind of the fact that you are writing about real people and that it's not always flattering? Was that something that hindered you or did you just kind of put that concern out of your head? Uh, It's definitely a concern. You know, it's definitely something that I think all memoirists uh, think about, you know, whether it's a workplace memoir or just a memoir about their personal lives. You know, you're always as a memoirist, you're writing about your own life, but your life is going to inevitably include other people that were in your life at the time. So you have to figure out a way of writing about them that is that you're going to be okay with, you know, and for some people that's, you know, showing them, showing the other people a, the, a draft of your book and making sure that they're all okay with it. Um, and for some people, they don't do that at all. And they're just like, I'm just going to write about, you know, whoever. So for me, it was definitely more of the latter, just because, you know, I, I the, a lot of the people that I wrote about in unflattering ways, there was like no way that they would ever consent to this. And and most of mm-hmm. those people are not even in my life anymore at all. Um, so I I definitely thought about it a lot, you know, but in the end, I just felt like I had to tell my story and I tried to do it as honestly as possible, but also be fair in the way that I did that, you know, and I, and I think that it's really just up to the readers to decide now whether I was successful at that. I, I think it's really interesting. You, you, you make it real clear in the very beginning of the book that one of the reasons why you write the book is because you want to answer the question that everybody keeps asking you, which is, you know, why did you quit this career that to a lot of people would seem like a dream? And, and I think the book explains it crystal clear. Um, in fact, when I read the friends chapter, I, I don't even want to watch that show anymore. I'm, I'm so, <laughs> I mean, I read it parts of it to my really? wife and she's like, that's awful. That's horrible. Um, well, I didn't think it was that harsh. <laughs> it was, I don't know. I mean, you really, but I, I'm curious though. I mean, the, the writing process um, for a memoir, which I'm kind of working on one myself right now, ha- has to be night and day different than w- the kind of work that you had done for so many years. I'm, I'm curious, mm-hmm. wh- what did you learn about yourself as a writer during during this project? Well, I I found my voice. You know, because as a TV writer, um, ironically, you know, you you don't use your own voice, right? Like when you're writing for a TV show, your whole job is to take on the voice of these other characters or, you know, to take on the voice of the showrunner. Usually, you know, they want their writers to write like them. And it's a very specific and peculiar skill that TV writers have. Um but then, you know, when you're trying to write your own stuff, you're like, well, who, what, what is my voice, you know? And so that's kind of what I discovered as I was writing this book was my own voice and, you know, being able to tell my personal stories uh, without sort of 
you know, the filter of like, oh, I'm writing about this, this character on a TV show, you know, and it's very liberating to be able to just write from your own experience. You know, people say to do what you love. That's like the advice that people give college graduates to, you know, follow your passion and do what you love. Um, And you basically did that, you know, you had grown up sort of obsessed with television, paying attention to writing. Now that you're kind of on the other side of it and you went through this whole experience with doing what you loved, what do you think about that piece of advice? (laughs) Hmm. Um, Yeah, that's a hard one because obviously, you know, people people want to find meaning in the, the jobs that they do because you're spending so much of your life at a job. And so obviously, you know, you want that that job to to have some meaning for you but but on the other hand you know what i experienced was i came to the the television television industry with this great love of television and a great love of creativity and that love got completely extinguished by the dysfunction of the business and um and some of that dysfunction is inherent in television writing. You know, it's, it's a, it is a business, right? It's, it's, it's commerce, right? You're, you have to produce material on a specific schedule. And that is so, um, antithetical to the way that I work creatively, just like in a natural way. So, um, so I just discovered that, you know, it wasn't worth it to me. Uh, for some people, it might be different, you know, they might, they might love their jobs and, and find a lot of meaning in that, but it's, it's a hard thing. You know, I also think that there's great dignity in doing a job, uh, you know, just to get a paycheck, right. Just to make a living. There's not, there's nothing wrong with that. And, um, I used to feel sorry for people who had like so-called boring jobs and now I, I get it. Like, I get it. To have a job where there's no drama and you just clock in and you clock out and it's easy to sort of fulfill your expectations, uh, There's there's that's very attractive to me at this point in my life because I, I saw what happens when you go into it with this, this like expectation that your job is going to fulfill some sort of like need in, in you, like emotional need in you, you know? I um I listened to this one on audio and uh it's first of all it's a little surreal to be watching seeing you and because you were living <laughs> in my my AirPods and my car for so long but um you know with memoirs I think it's always great when the author tells uh when the author narrates the book and for the vast majority of memoirs that I've listened to they do but sometimes they don't and um I've I've read that sometimes one of the reasons that authors decide not to narrate their own memoirs is because doing so and saying the words over again in some ways forces them to relive the trauma of what they've written about you know and some books are obviously more traumatic than others so mm-hmm. I guess I would ask you and you did narrate your book but as you you know 10 15 years later wrote and then ultimately performed these words, did you find yourself getting kind of emotionally sucked back into the stress of that? Did you have bad anxiety dreams during it, you know, or were you able to kind of divorce yourself emotionally from the the, the whole experience? I did get 
emotionally sucked into it, which is, you know, I did not expect that because I have, you know, looked at my book a million times uh, over the years. And, you know, during the editing process, you you reread it like so many times that I didn't think I was even capable of getting caught up in the emotion of it anymore. But then being in that little booth and 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 reading it out loud all at once, you definitely do feel um, greater emotion. And um, which I think is good is actually good for the recording. But um, sure. but but yeah, I mean, I, I, it wasn't traumatic to get sucked into it because I think I have done so much work, uh, you know, emotionally since I started writing it. And um, but I did have some dreams. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I remember I had a couple of very vivid dreams while I was recording the book, uh, but it was more about my mom and not, not about my jobs, you know, it was because mm. my mother, my mother died, uh, about six years ago. And, um, and weirdly, I, I don't dream about her a whole lot. Um, but when I do, it's very mundane, you know, there's not like, it, it it's not filled with a lot of emotion, but that, but when I was doing, recording the book, uh, I had some dreams where it was very emotional and I remember like waking up feeling incredibly sad um, mm. about her being gone. It seems like she's a, a real character in the book. I, some of my favorite yeah. portions are moments when you bring her up, like the, the book that, that your parents bought for your brother on how, how to become a doctor or the line that she had told you that you worked into freaks and geeks about virginity as a gift <laughs> Which I I just rewatched that episode a few days ago, and after I'd already read your chapter, I was like, that, "This is hilarious to 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 read the backstory on on this episode, and to to hear your mom be, be such a important character in this in this telling." Um, uh-huh. The um, the the freaks and geeks thing has got to be one of my favorite parts because obviously that's a TV show that a lot of our listeners connect with. Um, you know, sure. it's it's set in a defined period of time. Uh, and in a specific place that we all experience, but I, I'm I'm curious because it's such a specific setting. I mean, the early '80s in a school, the catchphrases, the the fashion, the culture. Everyone still remembers the tiniest details of that part of their mm-hmm. lives. Was did that help or hinder the creativity of your writing at that point? Oh, it absolutely helped. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that was, that show was so much fun to work on. I mean, really it was the only job that I had as a television writer that I can look back on with a lot of fondness Um, because not only was the show amazing, but the, the process of working on it, you know, the, the, uh, the writer's room on that show was so collaborative and so much fun because we would just talk about, our high school memories, you know, I mean, it was kind of like a group therapy session where we would talk about the most humiliating and embarrassing things that ever happened to us as teenagers. And the idea of using that stuff as material for the show was so cool because I just never thought that I would ever be able to use that stuff, you know? Um, So, so yeah, it was really fun and it was fun to, um, to see, you know, how all of this stuff come to life, you know, the, the, the set design was so cool and the costumes, you know, just take you right back to that time. So for me, it was, 
this, you know, I, I was essentially living my living like nostalgia every single day at work in, in a great way, you know, and being able to take the painful memories from high school and turn them into art was, um, was amazing, you know, it, because then they're not as painful anymore. <laughs> That's, I mean, you're preaching to the choir. I've, I've been doing this podcast for 18 years now. And all I do is regurgitate the painful memories of of the eighties and, and work my way through them, you know, and turn them into funny stories that everyone can laugh at. Sure. <laughs> so, and then, and then I just <laughs> rid them from my head. <laughs> They're gone forever. The um, I, I've always, it always drove me nuts that that, sh- that show wasn't more successful. Do you think I like, know if it come around today, you know, in a period where you have so many streaming options, would, is that what freaks and geeks needed? Did it need a streaming service to pick it up? I I think it probably would have helped. You know, I mean, NBC was probably the wrong place for it. Um, and they, you know, I mean, this was back in the era when uh, if you wanted to watch a show, you had to you had to sit down at the time that it aired and watch. I mean, you could you could uh, record it on your VCR, I guess. But uh, but, you know, that that sort of um, appointment television, you know, it only works if you leave a show on at the same time every single week and just let it let it grow an audience but they NBC didn't do that they were like moving it all over the place because we weren't getting good ratings and they thought well maybe if we put it on Saturday night <laughs> people will watch it like who watches TV on Saturday night so it was it, that definitely hurt the show um but i i i think also the audience for the show, like, I don't know if the network really understood who the audience for the show was. I think they thought maybe kids would be into it. And it it wasn't really a show for kids. It was for people our age or at the time, you know, I was like in uh, late 20s, early 30s. Um, you know, it was for people who grew up in the 80s. Like that's who the audience was. And so I think if they had marketed it for that audience, it would have, I think, uh, you know, turned out to be uh, more successful, you know, and I think now nostalgia for the eighties has only gotten bigger, you know, as our generation has gotten older, you know, we become more, even more nostalgic for the past. So I do think it would, I mean, and, and people are discovering the show now for the first time you know, on streaming and they're totally into it. So yeah, I do think streaming would have been a good thing for that show. So I have a couple questions for you about TV in the 80s, one of my favorite topics. Looking back at the 80s, which shows do you think inspired your love or your desire to write for television? Uh, well, the first, I mean, the first one for sure was 30 something. And um, that show... I don't know if you you guys are are into that, but sure. I mean, I when when Loved I it. first saw that, yeah, it was. I mean, I when I first saw that show, I was blown away because they were doing stuff on that show that I had never seen before on a TV show, and I don't think people understand that. You know, you hear thirty something, you just think like, oh, it's you know a bunch of yuppies talking about their relationships, but. That show was brown groundbreaking in a lot of ways. You know, they would do all sorts of like dream sequences and uh like this the storytelling was really unconventional. So they like I remember there was this one great episode where uh it was like a Rashomon 
kind of story where they had this one evening out and 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 it was told from four different people's point of view uh and you could see how their their lens changed what actually happened in the scene and and what they remember was said during during the scene it was just the coolest show and and also it was just really good character development you know you really cared about these people and uh and i just thought that i mean that was really the show that inspired me to become a television writer i always wanted to write a show like that that episode where um was it peter horton the episode where he died on the car <gasps> the bike accident oh my god oh my god and you think it's going to be the other character who's get who gets a clean bill of health on her breast cancer and then on the way yeah. to the hospital he dies and oh my god it was just such a punch in the stomach yeah, I remember when that aired. It was I was in college at the time and my friend, my best friend from high school, uh she was also a huge fan of the show and she and I called each other after that episode aired and we cried as if it was somebody that we actually knew who died. Yeah. That's how much we connected with that show and with those characters. Yeah, that ugh, I remember that scene. Um I wonder if you also were influenced by my favorite show from the 80s, which was St. Elsewhere, which also had a lot of that very realistic writing and yet also a little experimental and creative. It felt very different from some of the other kind of formulaic, you know, hour long dramas, but it had tons of character development and arcs that lasted season after season. Actually, that's not one that I that I watched. I, I heard it was great, but for some some reason, yeah. I never I never got into that one. Um, but like in terms of like the dramas of the era, like I remember Moonlighting also being one of my favorites. That also had unconventional storytelling. They would do all sorts of like weird stuff, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, like where it was like a period piece. One episode where where they were all in like medieval gear, <laughs> and like yeah. Yeah, do you remember that? <laughs> Did, did you know that Moonlighting just came back on Hulu? I think it started last night. Oh. The, the whole thing. Oh, and I, I watched the 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 whole first episode last night, and it's just it's surreal to see. It's Bruce crazy. Willis. Yeah. yeah, he's like he's I don't twenty yes. something, and he looks great. Yeah, that, that crazy. And, and, and yeah, that also that show was probably one of the best examples of the will they or won't they romance. Mm. Uh, which is such a cliche. It's been overdone. It, you know, every single rom-com uses that that trope, but they did it really well. And maybe it was just the chemistry between Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard, but they it it actually did keep my interest through like I don't how I can't even remember how many seasons until they finally hooked up at that at the very right. end. Um, I have a question for you, which is television today is looks really different than it did in the 80s. You've got a lot more diversity, you've got it's edgier, you don't have, you know, entire apartments and friend groups all filled with white people. And yet mm -hmm. when you look at the some of the shows that people are kind of discovering now, it's friends, it's the office. I mean, I love the office more than anything, but you know, it has not necessarily aged well. There's a lot of things that happen on that show and things that would never go in a workplace today, you know? So why right. do you, why do you think that given that we are in such a different climate in so many ways, why are those two shows so popular? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm always baffled when I find out that young kids are getting really into friends. 
I, you know, I mean, you go to Target and there are, there are t-shirts with like friends logos on them and stuff. I mean, it's, it's just insane. My, my husband's theory about this is that they're, they're nostalgic for a time that came before they were born. And so to them, it was like, you know, this is a time of, you know, when there was no, um, there was they didn't have any of these concerns that they have now about climate change and you know uh politics and just the state of the world right now which is very hard for young people to shoulder right and and so you know shows like friends where it's very light and fluffy and there's they're not talking about you know um big issues uh i think has some sort of appeal to these kids because it just feels like a time before their problems existed. That's my husband's theory. <laughs> it's kind of like us watching Happy Days in the 80s. Yes, you know, yes. Super exactly. innocent time, right? Or the Brady Bunch, you know, shows that like yeah. there was no threat of nuclear war in the Brady Bunch. And there was no, exactly. you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the things that we dealt with, yeah, in the yeah. 80s. Mm-hmm. I, I always find it weird. Don't whenever I stay at a hotel, there's always one channel that's always playing nothing but office reruns, and there's one channel that plays nothing but friends <laughs> reruns. And that's a, literally the only time I watch either show. But yeah. A, a few weeks ago, I finally watched the reunion special. Uh, I think it's on HBO for friends. And you know, it was interesting to to see it. And then I read your book and it got me thinking i i wonder if patty watched it and if she did what did she think did you watch the reunion special for friends i i did i did what was your reaction i enjoyed it you know i mean here's the thing like i this is why i reacted you know like i laughed when you said that you can't watch friends anymore you know because i am able to i have this ability to watch things that i know behind the scenes was problematic and still enjoy the final product. Um, and this comes up a lot, you know, with with uh, various creators who are, you know, have been me too'd. Uh, you know, I mean, I still watch Woody Allen movies. I still enjoy them, even though I know there is this level of, you know, there's a there's a problematic element to it. Um, but I can still appreciate them as the art that they were at the time. So yeah, anyway, I was able to watch the the Friends uh reunion and enjoy the the sort of highlight reels and um and the light banter, you know, knowing that okay, yeah, there's a lot more behind the scenes that they're not talking about because of course they're not talking about that on the reunion special. It wouldn't be the right forum for it. And that but that's fine, you know, like it is what it is and I was able to just uh just watch as a as a viewer, you know. So now that you've written this fantastic memoir, are, what's next for you? Are you thinking about um, other writing other books, nonfiction, fiction? What what can we expect? I would like I would love to write more books. You know, I mean, writing this one was uh, difficult, but also really rewarding, um, as opposed to the difficulty that I always felt. You know, in the television industry, you know, that wasn't that didn't end up being rewarding. So, uh, yes, I would love to write more books. You know, I mean, I don't know. I definitely felt that I had more memoirs in me. But, you know, having written this one and having had to promote this one, um, 
it, I, I feel like maybe I need to take a break from, from memoir for a little while. It's just a yeah. whole, this, the process of, of promoting a memoir is a very surreal experience where you're like talking about these like really painful experiences in your life, like in all of these public forums. So, um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm open to all of that. I'm open to writing a novel. I'm just, you know, right now I just want to take a little breather and, you know, sort of celebrate the completion of, of this project before I, you know, dive into the next one. You know, a lot of the things that you talk about in the book are, are difficult things, conditions that you worked under as a writer, um, you know, um, compensation, just, you know, all the things that kind of ultimately drove you away from it. And I'm wondering now that the writer's strike has been settled, do you see that um, some of the concerns you had, do you feel like some of the concerns that you had have been addressed finally by the studios and by, you know, the, the, the various players who would kind of squeeze the writers? And is there a part of you that kind of wonders if you had stuck it out longer would things have improved or do you feel like it's still not the right profession for you? I don't think that the writers, uh, the issues that the writer strike, you know, centered around, I, I don't think they're, they're the same issues that I had that led me to leave the business. You know, like most of the issues that led me to leave were, were, you know, baked into the Hollywood workplace culture. And those are things that are not, you know, cannot be addressed by by policy. You know, I I, I didn't leave because of, uh, you know, bad pay, right? Like at the time that I was working in in Hollywood fifteen years ago, I was making pretty decent money. Um, so that was never an issue for me, you know, which where it whereas it is an issue for writers now who are having a hard time, you know, making a living. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just I think that so many of these things that drove me out of the business, um, they just have to change from inside, you know, inside those writers, those individual writers rooms. And it starts with the people who are running these shows, who are, you know, have the power to create a workplace environment that can be, you know, creative and collaborative and rewarding versus what I often experienced, you know, where it was just the opposite of, of all of that, you know? So I, I, I just think it's going to be really hard for, for Hollywood to change, uh, you know, and the strike isn't, I'm happy that, that the writers got uh, like a lot of what they demanded, but I just don't think that that addresses my problems with it. Here at Stuck in the 80s, we like to think of the podcast as a time machine. And as such, <laughs> we can send a person back in time to re relive a moment, change an event, give yourself some advice at an earlier age. Um, if we give you a seat on the podcast time machine, um, you could go back and sing Karma Chameleon with your idol, Boy George. <laughs> or, But you could go back and relive any event or miss it or catch an event you missed. Um, how would you use your uh, seat on the time machine? Where would you go? Oh, I would go, I would go to Live Aid. Yes. I would go, I would go to Live Aid and I would get, I would find a way in to Wembley Stadium. I mean, I, when I, when I, when that happened, I was, you know, watching from home on my TV and it was so exciting. And I just, oh my God, like if I, I just thought if I could be there in that crowd, I would be the happiest person in the world. 
I was once a guest on the show and Steve, you asked me the same question and I had the same answer. <laughs> oh, really? <Yes. laughs> I'm sorry to be unoriginal. <laughs> no, no. It's it's uh, some people have said, I want to go back and see Prince on his purple rain tour. It's, it's a lot of oh, them are mu- yeah. musical. Usually musical. That would be amazing. Live Aid had, you know, so many different amazing artists and like, I mean, just to just to watch Queen up there would have been unbelievable. Um, you know, to see to see George Michael come up there and and sort of like have his moment. Like it just there were so many great moments in that. And like I, I remember like seeing David Bowie come out in his serious moonlight, you know, outfit. And 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 I remember hearing about how he had been backstage crying about the plight of the Ethiopians, you know, I mean, it just, oh my God, the whole thing was just unbelievable. My brother went to the Philly show and I'm so jealous. I'm just so jealous. And I always ask him, you know, like perennial, just tell me again what it was like when you were there. <laughs> yeah. But, but Wembley would have been more fun, I think, because yeah. you know, that yeah, just the, the caliber, I mean, the U2 performance. Oh, oh my God. I we watch my husband and I watch that DVD every Christmas. Um, <laughs> I love like you one guys. One of our Christmas traditions. <laughs> Be, I mean, even though that happened in the summer, it was like the you know I always associate it with Christmas because of um, do they know it's Christmas? Yeah, and uh, and it's just one of our cherished uh, Christmas traditions now. I, I I don't know how many people I've interviewed now over the course of eighteen years, but whenever I have someone who was at. Live Aid, like Howard Jones or Midyear, man, I just grill them. <laughs> like, just tell me yes. everything. Tell me, just just dump your knowledge onto me. I just want to know everything it was to be there that day. It's just one of my. And do they do they tell you that they had a good time, or were mm-hmm. they were was it just kind of annoying to be in a big crowd like that? No, they they always just the the, t- the stories are always interesting. I remember Tom Bailey from Thompson Twins told me that they went and played Scrabble with Niles Rogers because he oh. was recovering from alcohol, from, from drug use. And so they were trying to keep him out of trouble. So they took him back to the hotel between sets and played Scrabble with him for hours to keep him distracted. Oh my God. Um, uh, wow. Howard Jones told me that the guitar, that the piano was, ex- the keys were extra sticky because it's the, it was Queen's touring piano or something like that. He, he had a, he had a yeah. great story about it. I mean, everybody has a great story about it. It's, wow. It like they, they cherish that moment as much as we do. So I love Howard Jones. Oh my God. Nicest love guy him. in the world. Yeah. Pat, Patty, thanks so much for talking to us today. We really love your book. I really, uh, thank you. I, I stop and read portions of it out to friends or I text them about things I've learned. <laughs> um, Really uh, hope our listeners will will buy it and read it too. Just a great story that um, a lot of us need to read. Thank you so much. It was really fun talking to you. There she is, Patty Lynn. Great conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed that, especially just hearing about how formative the 80s were for her. Sure. 30-something was a show that I don't, th- I think I caught it towards the tail end, but you guys really made a connection on that. That was nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I love that show. And it's sort of, you know, I think of like 30 something and freaks and geeks and my so-called life, you know, those shows are kind of of a particular ilk and um, 
there's, you know, I, I think that when you get to know those characters, especially at a formative time in your life, they really just stick with you. He talks a lot about Freaks and Geeks as being the most positive experience you had in Hollywood. And for, for those who haven't seen it, it's streaming right now on Hulu. And I think maybe on Paramount Plus as well. So check check around and see what services you have. But I know I, I watched a little bit of it on Hulu. And the, the, my takeaway from it, I haven't seen all 18 episodes of it. It only lasted one season. But it's sort of like square pegs if the characters were much more fleshed out and in a much more believable um, setting and atmosphere and challenges. Is that is right. that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Was that the show that Busy Phillips was on? Yes. So I, I read her memoir. I love celebrity memoirs and I read hers and she talked a lot about the experience of being on that show. She was a young actress and um, she also had equally positive things to say about the cast and the writers and just what a great, set that was to be on yeah so so many big names in the cast that would go on to do great things it's um it's a shame it came around was it 1999 if it had come around 15 years later i think it would have done great on netflix or amazon prime or something like that where it would have had a little bit more room to to grow and not be subjected to the whole you know stay home on a Saturday night and watch television instead. That just, I think that just killed what was really smart idea for television. Right. Really interesting to hear her answer on the podcast time machine question. I'm I'm always concerned when I ask that because I don't know how off guard I'm going to catch people. And and I had forgotten that you had given the same answer that she did. (laughs) Same answer. It's a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I watch that DVD too and I make my kids watch it and um, it's, really one of my most kind of treasured possessions, that box set of, of live aid. And uh, you know, when you guys were talking about just hearing about people's experiences, another memoir that I really enjoyed was Phil Collins memoir, not dead mm-hmm. yet. I read it. And he, yeah. And he talks a lot about the, the dual live aid performances and, you know, him being in Wembley and then flying to Philadelphia and how, you know, he, he got a lot of attention for that. And people are like, Oh, you're so, you know, such a hero for doing that. And how much he really did not enjoy the limelight of that experience, but he just wanted to perform in both places and, you know, was asked to do it. And he said, well, okay, I can try to make that work. Um, and I don't know, he was sort of humble about that whole thing. Yeah. Well, I, I know and the whole reunion thing with Led Zeppelin didn't go over so well. Right. But um, no, that's, I, I think, Live Aid's always going to be that Woodstock moment for our generation. And things like Phil Collins and his flight on the Concorde so that he can yeah. play both. It's just, it's one of those things that makes the myth all that much more memorable. And I I really appreciate that Patty connects with it and um, agrees that the London one is the one that she would have wanted to see. Same, same with me. Um, I really look forward to to seeing what she does next. She's she's an exceptional writer. I really her book is is a journey that I've really enjoyed taking. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great experience. So, if you like workplace memoirs, uh memoirs about people who are formed and obsessed with the 80s um or you just like good writing, I I highly recommend this one. If people want to read your book reviews, Gail, where would they find them? Sure. So you can find me at everydayiwritethebookblog.com 
always got to have my nod to 80s music everywhere I go. And um, I also co-host a book review podcast called The Readerly Report. So if you prefer to get your book reviews in audio form, check out The Readerly Report wherever you get your podcasts. You know what I would like to talk about next? Brad, what are you doing here? Well, Steve, I'm here for The The Seggies. Brad, you're really late to this week's show. What's up? I was on strike. I thought we were doing the SAG after thing, but then you know I just got swept up in the whole thing. I, you know, living in LA, it's, it's sometimes it's not a great vibe. <laughs> I, I've been kind of curious. I mean, is there ha- ha- was there any kind of effect on you from that? No, not. R- I mean, it didn't affect me personally. The people I work with are building facilities to broadcast programming, generally speaking. So just because they didn't have any new programming doesn't mean they weren't broadcasting stuff they had. Um, but did, did you come across picket lines? I did stuff? cross the picket line a few times. Yeah, when I was, I had meetings down at the Fox lot, and uh, I, you know, I'm like, "What? Else? Oh, right, they're striking, <laughs> right?" And I felt a little bad, I'll tell you. But you know, it did, seems did to they give out. you any grief? What, no, how, oh what no, happened? no, they were very, very respectful. They would, they were out in front of the the entrance. This is fascinating, I know. And they would just cross the street when they had the walk light, so back and forth across all they basically <laughs> walk in circles but they would never block traffic you know so they're like we're here we want oh. you to see us but we're not going to slow you down like maybe if you're making a right on red you would have had that problem but i was making a protected <laughs> left turn so i didn't have that problem and then usually by the time i left at the end of the day i was only down there a couple times well we did talk about that in the interview this week so just i was just kind of it seemed like a natural follow-up question yeah i mean you know i live such an exciting la lifestyle out in the suburbs um Plenty of people I know that are that live in my neighborhood that are waiting for things to get kicked off again because of like people who work in crew support or editing and stuff like that. That like, well, no shows, no work. So, yeah, cool. Okay, well, not cool, but yeah. Let, let's hope they get that wrapped up on the SAG after side, and then we can all get back to work. Someday podcasters will unite, and uh, I don't know what that'll be like, but I just know we'll get a nice vacation. It won't be pretty. <laughs> anyway, this is the spin me round, Seggy. Sorry if I peaked the audio with my excitement there. Uh, We'll play a song backwards. If you can get it right, you're entered into the drawing for the postal-friendly bottle opener. It's amazing how a vodka tonic makes me pronounce things just right. Mm. Tasty. Anyway, from episode 678, that was our first UK Just Missed the Biscuit episode. And so this was actually a question... (laughs) This requires explaining. This is a song from that episode, per se, that time period, 1973 to 1975. So if you're going to say it wasn't an 80s song, yes, we told you then it was not an 80s song. We told you it was a mid-70s song. And here's what it sounded like. That's Ballroom Blitz by Sweet. Okay, I'm going to just take a slight left turn here. You might remember, Steve, that I wasn't on that show. I remember. You went too far back. You just went too far back. The show is not called Stuck in the 70s. You didn't need to go that far back to establish the 80s. 
Having stated that, I'm ready to get on board with future episodes. (laughs) Well, I, I think we went back as far as we could go. While still bridging, making a bridge to the 80s. I, I, I don't think you needed the bridge to go that far. It's a bridge too far, Steve. It's a bridge too far. <laughs> I was just watching that today. But you know what's funny? It's it's on Amazon Prime. and <laughs> Talk about left turn. A Bridge Too Far is one of the movies my dad took me to in okay. the late 70s. And, and so it, it holds a place in my heart. Same with Midway and Logan's Run and all those movies. But Bridge Too Far, for some reason, really hits home. And you can see it right now for free on Amazon Prime, I believe it is. But there are no captions for the scenes with the Germans or the Dutch. (laughs) So you just have to – it's just kind of one of those, well, they seem distressed. I'm sure they're talking about Uh, Yeah, they're probably talking about, you know, (laughs) boy, the schnitzel last night just wasn't done right. We were watching something on on my Plex server, and similarly – the what I would think of as open captions did not come along with the movie itself. Yes. So I'm like, okay, and well, let's you could that turn out. captioning on, but then it would also give you the captioning for the English, which I do not need. As a native English speaker, yes. Well, as far as we know. Anyway, we got some people. We fooled nobody, nobody with this clue. Uh, I think even I got it once. I gave once Chuck gave me the clue that it was okay. It's from the mid seventies, and it was also a number two. Just missed the biscuit song. Mm, okay, yeah. Now I really want biscuits. Yeah, right. Either the American or the British variety. I mean, here's the thing that I've noticed because I picked this one out too, along with the Talking Heads one from the last time. Is if it's got a if the clip has a distinctive percussion beat, somehow yes. that your brain is able to. It yes. must just be the nature of the audio waveform of a percussion hit. I I also think the more times you do it, your brain's like, okay, yeah, I know what you're trying to do. I figured it out for you. Thank you. You're welcome. So it's like learning how to do <laughs> Sudoku puzzles. I, I have never done one, so I don't know. But okay. I'm assuming – or Wordle, whatever the hell that is. Oh, I love Wordle. Every day. I have no clue. Zero clue. I'm still playing words for friends. So. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I gave that up. The temptation to cheat was just too great for me. Oh, I cheat openly. I, I, I just, think that's the like, way to go about I it. Can't, I, can't, I can't in good <laughs> conscience keep doing this. A little piece of my soul is dying every time I look up the best yeah. word combinations. No, I cheat and still lose to the wife. So, oh anyway. no, you got you need better cheating tools, or she's got a better cheating algorithm. Hmm. Maybe. See, anyway. you, you say it's you playing your wife. It's really two AIs playing each other, using you as a meat puppet. <laughs> Great. I'm going to sleep well tonight. Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> read some winners. Let me you read some, some winners. Uh, yeah, this is going to take a little bit. Here we go. There might be an intermission. I don't know. Winners this week include Cincinnati Joe, Michelle D, Terry in Perth, Tim from Asheville, Kevin Pipewench, Richard the Big Bunny, Kelly in Texas, Jason in Memphis, Kelly Ian Huntsville, Alabama, Peter in Manila, Jeremy, Who Shot J.R. Rodwan, Dan in Omaha, Scott in Music City, Eric with one eye but two eyes. I see what you did there, Eric. Mm, homonyms, they're fun. Brent the Chem Teacher, Sir Dave of Parrot, Mr. Whiskey, Anonymous Dave, Chris in Huntsville, no relation to Kelly, I'm sure. No correlation there. Brett from Melbourne, Australia, Keanu from Midmo, Brian in San Francisco, Martino in Vancouver, Rob Jones, Tamworth, UK. What? Rob Jones, Tamworth, UK. something's wrong there. Rob Jones, Rodney from <laughs> the Shadow of the Rockies. Me. I know, I need to look it up. 
or should we just go with it? Let me look. Just at keep it. going with it. Go, okay. go, go. Ride, you fool. Ride. <laughs> Rodney from the shadow of the Rockies, not to be confused with Rodney on the Rock. Tommy Doucette in Boston. Lou, sweet Lou Greeley. Ken in Phoenix, Arizona. Cleone in Coney Island. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Jeff in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Lynn with three N's in Nebraska. Commodore 64, Will, Stony Stitt, Commander Bourbon, Mike Z, Todd in Minnesota, Carlos M. Hernandez in St. Louis, Missouri, Jace Washington, Davenport, Todd Cunningham, Dave De La Dirt, and Chuck Whaley. Chuck Whaley. Phew. <laughs> I don't know why I feel like saying that. Chuck Whaley. Chuck Whaley. My voice is still a little trashed from going to a soccer game this weekend so i'm I'm doing the fm radio voice chuck (laughs) whaley spin me round okay let's spin the wheel speaking of that and find out who comes home with the uh, postal friendly bottle opener okie dokie here we go a one a two a one two Mm. looks like it's gonna land on ken in phoenix arizona Send us your, uh, I don't know why I'm making sound effects. This is fun. I haven't had a drink during a podcast in a while, so Hmm. that's probably it. Anyway, Ken in Phoenix, Arizona. Winslow, Arizona. Is that Winslow, Arizona from the Eagles song? Anyway. Oh, my uh, goodness. We're off the rails there, folks. Off the rails. Postal address. Postal address. Please. We'll send something to you. It'll be amazing. You'll love it. Anyway, pay attention. Here's this week's. Mystery Clue. If you know it, email us at podcast.sit80s.com, S-I-T-80-S.com, and tune in soon to find out if you're a winner. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no Ah, this old chestnut, take this job and shove it. Interesting. I don't know how many more of these we'll have. Probably more than I want. <laughs> hmm. But I, I, have a, I have a job update, but we'll get to it after Chad and Hollister tells us his story. So, Brad? Here we go. Chad writes, Hey, Spearsy, I am so sorry you're having difficulties getting over that horrendous affliction called unemployment. The last time I had a prolonged case of that was between 2015 and 2017. I did have work during those two years, but the pay was crap, and one of those jobs was part-time when I was promised full-time. How did I get there? Well, it's not a happy story. It started happy, anyway. In 2001, I got started in professional radio. I started as a part-time board operator, and by the time that job ended in early 2010, I was the board operator supervisor. The radio stations in the building were all being sold off, and those of us who didn't head up to San Francisco with our classic rock station would be laid off. I was laid off. (laughs) Sorry, I don't mean that. Yeah, I should say that I had continued employment dangled in front of me like a carrot to help with the work of getting content sent off to the new building, but that carrot was quickly pulled away when I wasn't needed anymore. As luck would have it, though, one of the other stations in that same building needed people, so I had a job, but I was back at part-time. I got promoted to full-time within a few months, but I took a big pay cut. I was there for about five years, and the last year was hell. I had a program director who micromanaged me to within an inch of my life, and 30 days before firing me, he told me my voice wasn't up to standard, and I couldn't voice anything longer than five seconds. Oh, jeez, what a dick. Sorry, that was me editorializing. (laughs) 
I was a production assistant by then, so my voice was on a lot of commercials, and I'd never had any complaints before then. So he fired my ass. This would mark the end of my radio career. The only radio jobs I could get after that were either part-time entry-level positions or unpaid internships. Yeah, don't, don't do that, Chad. Don't do that. You are worth more than zero. It took two years for me to get steady full-time work again, and it's in a completely different field. I work for a composites manufacturer now in the quality assurance department. It's not a dream job, but it pays decently, and I have benefits now. The upside is, unlike radio, I get regular pay raises and bonuses. Also, I bet no one says, hey, your voice isn't up to this QA work. Chuckles. <laughs> like, what a dick. I can't believe that. Anyway, sorry, I'm really hung up on that on your behalf, Chad. Anyway, that's Chad's tale of woe, he says. I hope you get a new job soon and one that pays you what you deserve. All the best, Chad and Hollister. Wow. God, I, I hate when mm. it's funny. Um you know, it's like it's like the slow the slow, you know, it's like Rome didn't fall in a day. Rome wasn't built in a day, it didn't fall in a day. It's just like the slow motion wheels yeah. coming off is just awful when you look back at it in retrospect. It's I think it's I, better I get, the way I got laid off at Disney where I literally a week <laughs> before I got let go, I was telling someone, Oh no, I'm not worried at all. My department's kicking ass. <laughs> Turned out they were going to go kick some ass without me. Um, anyway, I owe you an update. I don't know when I said the last time I was on the show, but I I was officially turned down for the job in Oklahoma. I wasn't trying to relocate there. It was a remote job just to be on the just to be on the up and up. Because uh, a, a friend of mine emailed and said, "Hey, if you're open to relocation, you know." But I, but no, I'm, I'm trying to stay in Orlando. It was just based in Oklahoma. So after four rounds of interviews with that, I, I did get a, a generic rejection letter. Um, two days ago, though, I started a three. <laughs> it's really sad. I, I don't even want to get excited about it. I started a contract gig that okay. lasts, get this, three weeks. <laughs> it's just oh, like, yeah. But, hey, you know, three weeks yeah. of pay is Book three the weeks gig. of pay. That's what, that's what I say. Book the yeah. gig, right? Anyway, that's all we have for this week. Definitely check out Patty Lynn's book. It's called End Credits, How I Broke Up with Hollywood. But in the meantime, Gail, Brad, and myself remain here, hopelessly stuck in the 80s. Stuck in the 80s is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music. And thanks for listening. <laughs>